Hey guys, come on in, grab a seat, make yourself at home as you should when you're a guest in Bradley's house. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. She is the host of my favorite podcast <laughs> and the executive director of the Noel Family Foundation, our host, Ms. Kelly Noel. Kelly, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Jared. How are you? Uh, you know what? I, I can't complain because nobody cares. So um, <laughs> I just kind of I just kind of keep it as it is. So, you know, the old saying goes like when when somebody asks how you're doing, if you're doing good, you say great. If you're doing shitty, you say I'm fine. Uh, but there's really <laughs> no sense. There's really no sense in complaining and doing either way. So uh, but it turns out for tonight, I am great uh, because we're coming off of an awesome show. Um, the last episode, we had Brandon Hardesty from Bumpin' Uglies on. He told some hilarious stories. Yes. I'm already getting some great feedback on that one. It seems like people really enjoyed it. Uh, and then, of course, we had Brindy come on and chat with us a little bit. So a lot of excitement in the last show. And honestly, Kelly, after we got done recording that show, I went, wow, Brandon gave us a, a great show. Brindy came on and told some, some really great stories and had some great answers. I'm nervous on how we're we're going to follow this one up. And then you sent me a text message and said that you lined up a very special guest for all of the listeners in Bradley's house. Kelly, who's our guest today? I feel super fortunate that I have some really amazing friends. And today we have the pleasure of talking with Sublime's former A&R rep, co-owner of Silverback Artist Management and Controlled Substance Sound Labs, and a dear friend of our family, John Phillips. John, thank you for being with us. It's great to be here, Kelly. <laughs> so good to have you here, John. I know you're a busy man, and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Well, I appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. So first off, right off the bat, I would like you to share with our listeners how you got started in the music business. Uh, man, well, I guess we could say in 1991, I was uh, trying to figure out where to go to college and what I wanted to do with my life. And I was just a huge fan of music. I grew up in Northern California, in the Bay area. I was exposed pretty early on to the music business. Um, my uncle was first one in my family to really start in the music business and had an illustrious career managing the likes of Rod Stewart and Susanna Hoffs, Prince Morrissey, uh amongst others um as wow. a young manager and as a kid i kind of got exposed to a little bit of the music biz and when i was looking for where to go to college there was um the opportunity to come out to ucla and was accepted there and start to work uh for my uncle's company as an intern while being in college i was really interested in exploring the music business and thought I'd be going to law school after UCLA, but I kind of got out to out to Southern Cal um, <clears throat> and got entrenched with booking shows on campus at UCLA, at the Cultural Affairs Commission, um, which at UCLA handled the Jazz and Reggae Festival, handled noontime bookings in Bruin Walk in the quad area. So I kind of jumped right in when I got to college. I, I came I came to uh, UCLA and Southern Cal uh, as an excited music fan, um, extremely influenced by 
music I grew up with, uh, mainly at that point, you know, Grateful Dead was a big part of my early exposure to um, a music and band that kind of existed within its own, own cult- culture, created its own culture, you'd say, and kind of existed outside the music biz. So uh, between intimate experiences within that realm and kind of watching my uncle grow with the likes of, you know, some of the artists I talked about, I just gravitated to the music business. And when I got out here, I started um, booking shows on campus. I started working at my uncle's record label, Gasoline Alley Music and Stiefel Phillips Management. And I was getting exposed to, you know, firsthand to how the industry actually worked. Um, real early on, I, I got exposed to music industry trade magazines. Um, Billboard is one of them, but to the non-consumer, you know, if you were in the biz, there was like trade magazines, Hits Magazine, FMQB, Billboard, of course, they tracked the music business. There's box office tracking, there was radio tracking, there was um, <clears throat> um album sales with billboard and it was just interesting once i started seeing like this is this is a business and um you know it i just kind of gravitated to that and being exposed to seeing what managers kind of did for artists and also the excitement of being at a live concert you know uh was just something that inspired me to um and music mostly i mean like i said i came in as a fan you know i i grew up listening to all kinds of music but my family exposed me to reggae at a very early age they took our family to jamaica when much like bradley and jim you know i always related to that story where brad would tell me how you know jim took him to the caribbean and he became exposed to you know that kind of music and rhythm and that was the same for me you know i had hip cool parents that I think my dad was probably the first white dude with a boom box in New York. And he had, uh, I, we were born, I was born in New York, but I remember back then in 75, 76, uh, the boom box and the cassette tapes of Bob Marley's Nazi dread album. And yeah. just going to Jamaica when I was six years old. And honestly think from what i was told we were we were taking a trip to jamaica to go see bob marley playing concert and ended up getting rained out so we never got to see bob but i did get to go to jamaica and just early exposure to to the the reggae of bob marley um the kind of fanfare and and you know spectacle of a rod stewart and then it's getting exposed and going uh experimenting mind expansion and music expansion with the Grateful Dead in the Bay Area as, you know, a high school kid. And I just, those are the kind of things that form, form, uh, formulated, I guess, my, my early, like, um, predisposition to get involved with music and inspired me mm. to, to do so, you know? Well, you, um, you have some of the coolest parents. I absolutely adore your parents. They're just the sweetest people. So it doesn't surprise me that you would end up getting into the industry because... I'm sure they gave you a great foundation of music. I mean, they were in the clothing business and that wasn't really for me. I, mean, I like fashion, but I, I didn't want to be in the same retail clothing business. But my dad was just a music head. And I think I was telling you before, I mean, I discovered his vinyl record collection at a pretty early age and took on real early, you know, a liking to the Allman Brothers, eat a peach record and 
uh, Bad Company and Leonard Skinner. And uh, I mean, there are some dead records in there. There's Crosby, Stills, and Nash, of course, the Beatles. And, um, you know, it just, that was the music that hit me first, classic rock and improvisational, you know, rock music. And also country too. My, my dad went on the one music business thing that my dad actually did was he did an early tour with Willie Nelson as a tour accountant. Um, yeah. And when we first moved to California, he actually went on one road trip with Willie Nelson and Paul English and Pootie and the whole kind of Willie Nelson family. And, and that was something I think he got that job from my uncle and, just you know took it as out of the box we were moving and he needed work and uh i just remember as a kid getting postcards from the willie nelson tour and then we listened to a lot of willie and waylon when we moved cross country so that and the eagles and things like that but yeah my parents were really inspirational but my uncle was like i said he he had a, a real foundation in the music business as a successful manager and allowed me to come into that world and and be exposed to it and pay my dues. And um, he started a record label with MCA records called gasoline alley music. And I started working in 91, 92 for gasoline alley. Wow. So when did you first hear Sublime? Mm -hmm. So by 93, um, there was a guy kind of like me in the office, uh, a guy by the name of Greg Abramson, groovy Greg. And he is a guy that was down Cal state long beach and he was doing a music internship at the label, just like me. And we were just the same age and, you know, kind of just related to each other. And, uh, he was actually working in the radio department and at the, you know, we would just hook up for lunch and, you know, we would, uh, talk music and whatnot. And he was actually in the company at the time he was, he was doing an internship but he was also on the company uh he was doing cassette tapes for sublime and packaging them up and i remember him you know giving me one of the cassette tapes uh he was basically making early bootleg sublime cassettes to try to help promote the band because he was trying to break in and he he knew them from long beach and he was like you got to check this band out sublime and uh so he gave me the green cassette, uh, jaw won't pay the bills. And he gave me a cassette of 40 ounces to freedom. And this was the 40 ounce came out in 92. The music before that, that was, you know, on jaw won't pay the bills, the roots of creation and Romeo's no songs. Uh, those are the first two things I got those. I want to say in 93 and, Honestly, I put, they were cassettes and I remember putting them in my, uh, my Ford pickup and I I don't think they left the cassette deck for, you know, two years. They don't leave the cassette deck (laughs) until ever really after that. But, um, I remember putting, um, bad fish on for the first time or hearing that come on and just, uh, I just struck me as something so simple and beautiful. And, um, you know, it was for me kind of the influential music that I was, telling you about that really affected me i mean sublime and 40 ounce they they had every bit of that and then some i mean they have bob marley starting it off with trench town they had a grateful dead scarlet begonias they had the punk rock that was also a big influence the descendants and um bad religion and i don't know that mix and the sampling it was just like i had never really heard a fusion of music that was that unique and that also 
encapsulated all of the, um, you know, groups that, that were hugely influential for me in one package. So I, uh, I just, I became kind of obsessed with, you know, with the music and, uh, Greg Abramson was like, well, you should come down in Long Beach and see the band or come meet the band. And, and, uh, so I started, you know, going to early sublime shows at some of the, um, Orange County, Huntington Beach venues, the hole in the wall spots where mm. Sublime actually was playing for, you know, two to 300 kids that knew every mm-hmm. single word to their music. And there was this energy that was happening there that you, you know, it's once you were kind of, it was infectious. And once you kind of realized like, well, there's, there's really something going on. There's a connection going on here. And you know, at the center of that, of course, like you look up on stage and Bradley was kind of running the show and, and um, hitting them on a good night because there were some great nights and there's some really bad ones. But when they were right. popping and the pit was rolling and the kids were singing, whatever, it, <laughs> it, it was kind of undeniable for me. So I honestly yeah. just um, between that and the 40 ounce is they hadn't recorded Robin the hood yet. I think they just kind of started delving down that road, but I just honestly went on a crusade similar to like Greg was, and we just started making cassette tapes and sending them out to people in the music business and trying to get like, I didn't really care what it was at the time. I mean, I told gasoline alley about the band and things the music business sometimes take time and you know it was just like it wasn't necessarily going to be overnight but i was like no matter what i'm i'm working with this band like this is this is my crusade at this point and uh so how did you make that happen well it wasn't easy i'll say that you know some people have heard the story before some people have um i got friendly with brad and miguel and Groot and greg and um they kind of had a little thing happening really out of their garages it was just a grassroots homegrown friends that were printing cds of sublime and trying to promote them to independent retail stores and at live shows and it was it was the real thing it was the grassroots post-punk diy mentality and these guys were from long beach and you know not a bunch of hollywood kids and it was punk rock and um you know uh, there was an attitude there and a kind of rebellious spirit against authority or maybe the authority of the music biz and the punk rock like thing and the band was doing all that and uh I didn't know who was managing the band or who was doing what, like, was it Greg? Was it Miguel? Like it, it seemed like it was just things were happening and I just, I wanted to be involved. So um, I did try to take it to the label and to my, the company I worked for my uncle and his partner and the guys that, you know, I was 23 at the time. And these are veterans of the music business that had already worked with superstars. And I told them, I was like, you know, you got to listen to sublime because this could really be the next big, you know, music. Um, at the time grunge was happening up in Seattle and Nirvana had broken, uh, you know, through on commercial radio and Soundgarden and all that stuff. And it was like, I knew enough musically that like music happens regionally and subculturally and you know what was next and getting exposed to what was happening in long beach and orange county with the punk ska 
um, you know, reggae influence, but with hip hop and with the kind of urban culture and beach culture plus cannabis culture, it was all there. Um, and I told the label, I bet the farm and the music, you know, uh, check it out. I think this could be like the next Nirvana. Um, and it took them a while. They didn't, they didn't necessarily hear it. I mean, if you listen to 40 ounces to freedom, just as a layman, it's got a lot of samples and every song runs into each other. And it's, you know, it's kind of almost hard to dissect the songs at first. So the typical record industry guy wasn't necessarily getting it. And the guys that were, I think Sublime was like kind of just, again, wasn't really catering to the industry, although they were rubbing shoulders with some people and make a little noise. They were burning bridges. I mean, I remember when I first mm -hmm. got in, it was like there was an attorney that was interested. There was a guy from Atlantic that was interested. Epitaph was kind of, you know, around somewhere and, uh, I just, you know, I don't know. I just stuck with it and kept telling people the music business about it. And I think Brad took a, a liking to me. And um, the band came up to uh, Gasoline Alley to meet the label for the first time. <laughs> they <laughs> they brought Lou Dog and they brought their case of beer and their smokes and the whole thing. And they just kind of came up and invaded the label. Uh, it was as punk rock as you could really get. And it was in a, you know, an office of Beverly Hills kind of suits and uh, old school music business people. So they weren't ready for the chaos that was, you know, sublime their entourage. Uh, <laughs> they weren't ready for the chaos. That's a great line. <laughs> yeah, I definitely remember Lou Dog was running around. He He pissed on the floor and yeah, there was just there was just mayhem going on and the execs were like looking at me going like who did you bring in here like who are right. these guys <laughs> and to tell you the truth they they ended up not having time to meet with the band that day and the band kind of just kind of barged up like i said at that point we were getting friendly bradley was comfortable with me and um i was definitely trying to make something happen for them and um they just came up in their own element and it, it it just didn't work the first time and mm. remember them leaving somewhat, um, you know, disenchanted and they left the office. And I remember going down there that night to, uh, to the parking lot of the label and all the label executives <laughs> had their, um, their names on the parking placards. I was just like an entry level, you know, guy at this point just getting into a and r and given, and I didn't have a, a, a name, but I didn't have a parking spot. Like, uh, but my uncle's the president of the label and all that they were, were that you could see which cars were theirs and sublime went and uh, put this gigantic bumper sticker uh, on my uncle's <laughs> BMW, which was like <laughs> some special edition European model, whatever. And they just mm. stuck this, it was one of these homemade sublime they were making their own merch and stickers and stuff. It was yeah. one of these old, KLOS oh. rainbow stickers and I remember going down there that night and seeing that biggest day on my uncle's BMW and he just Ouch. flipped and they were like <laughs> you mean he didn't like that we're not signing this band <laughs> fuck this they'll never you know it's the typical they'll never work another day in this um. business uh so you know at that point I was a little bit discouraged and and heartbroken or whatever you want to call it but I didn't necessarily want to give up and 
you know, I called Brad and I was like, yo, uh, the sticker move didn't really go over well. And <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think these guys want to want to sign you. And uh, Bradley tell me, no, oh, dude, you told me to do it. I was like, no, I didn't tell you to do it. I didn't tell you not to do it, but I didn't even really know, you know? And uh, oh. stuff is to say, like at that point, um, Brad said to me, he was like, I mean, I remember literally he said, you know what? He goes, fuck gasoline alley. He's like, we'll just, you can just be our manager and, you know, um, we'll put your name in the thank yous and say, fuck gasoline alley. And he was talking about robbing the hood because they were just kind of like getting through that record. Um, and I was like, well, let's not do that. You know what I mean? What? But I'm definitely in it for the long haul and I'm down to go and shop it elsewhere and use my my contact base to, you know, see who we can make some interest happen with. If this label's not into it, you know, I'm I'm down. And so that's kind of when I really like uh you don't know when you're that age that managing a band and a label and a band and the label management don't always uh have the same agendas or you know necessarily there's sometimes a conflict of interest or whatever but um i really didn't care i was just completely sold on the music of sublime really being something that uh, you know uh, that's what i wanted to put my energy into and i told the label that i mean i'm not going to bring you any more bands like this is the band i want to work with and while that was going on uh sublime was playing college gigs and um backyard parties still little clubs and they were trying to kind of enter into hollywood they'd play like little dive bars and stuff and slowly but surely we got some people from the music industry out to see them and a little buzz was, was somewhat happening they were still crushing it down south but you know the major re- record label community wasn't necessarily going to huntington beach to the eight and a half club you know um mm. but I was, and then the band was coming up here and, um, I was, I had just finished UCLA too. And there was, uh, I'd lived in this place in the Hollywood Hills at the time. And I remember telling the band, like, you know, how about you guys come up and I've got this balcony that overlooks like this Canyon and, you know, it's real, like come up to, come up to Hollywood and want you come and play at my house like on the balcony and I'll invite people from the music business and from gasoline alley and all that. And sublime actually came to my house and played two sets until the cops came. Uh, I think one person from the music business really showed up, but Mm. it was one of those like legendary afternoons and we just really connected. And at that point, um, I went back to the label. One of the guys that came from the label absolutely loved the band. And, uh, you know, one of the older cats that actually showed up and, and they had some other shows. So we eventually got people out there. And um, there was one time that they were opening for 311 at the Whiskey or supposed to be opening. That was a sold out show. It was finally like a, a one in Hollywood where it was going to be super packed. And I remember bringing all these label people out there and this line was outside and they were all in there. They had their label jackets, gasoline alley. And there was other label people there too. And um, that was one of those shows that sublime just didn't show up for. Uh, so Yikes. it was like another crushing blow, like finally had everybody there. <laughs> and, uh, and for where sublime was at that point, they were 
opening for 311 to put it in perspective at the whiskey. Yeah. Um, you know, they weren't headlining. But um, <clears throat> it just, when you're passionate about something, and again, I mean, we're talking about Bradley Dolan Sublime, probably the best music ever. So, you know, uh, I'm going to stick with that. And eventually was able to get um, Gasoline Alley to come back around and recognize that, you know, this was something. I think they were just tired of me not shutting up about it, too. And was just like, <laughs> give give the kid a shot, you know. That's and, how I got uh, Kelly to do this podcast. So <laughs> It's true. <laughs> it's really true. Well, I, I understand that. Happened. John, maybe you can maybe you can help clear up a, a story for me that I remember reading or hearing about. I mean, there's so many different stories, and it's so hard to tell what's real or not. But it sounds like Brad obviously loved the music, and he felt strongly about it. Seems like maybe business wasn't something that he was as interested in. Maybe that's why he kept Miguel and yourself around. But I remember hearing a story about a meeting at like a Chinese restaurant where – Brad just picked up his shit and walked out and went and ate out yep. in the car while the meeting yep. continued. Were you, yeah, were you so at that, that was, meeting? Yeah, that was next. So after I kind of, the label was like, okay, the sticker incident, we'll, my, we'll make a deal with the devil if it's going to make money type of mentality. So, and I'm like, at this point I was like, listen, I will bet the farm on the music. You guys are going to have to realize this is, you know, punk rock. So it's going to be real rock and roll. And you know, the one thing that I was very aware at, uh, about, um, although not necessarily experienced with, was, you know, the um, problems with substance abuse in the band and specifically with Brad. And I do remember telling the label early on, like, you know, the risk here is like a, a Kurt Cobain scenario. Like, this is such massive talent, you know, but there's also, you know, that's the danger in a sense and the risk and shortly after uh because i'm just one of those kind of guys like i'm not gonna mince words or you know hide from the truth and you know let's face it i mean substance abuse has been a big part of rock and roll for a long time and that's why a bradley's house exists and um you know that's why there's other people that are trying to do things in this field because you don't want to lose another shooting, you know, rising shooting star. That's, um, but at that time I was sensitive to that and told the label, like, you know, this is a, this is a real variable, um, you know, and they're, these guys had dealt with Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses before. So this wasn't the first time that, you know, musicians had been a part of their world that had less than desirable, you know, habits and things. And um, shortly after that, the band ended up, Gasolini came around, they signed, you know, they, they, they offered the band a deal and, um, when the band signed and then about four or five months late, no, probably six months later. Cause I think they signed in July of 1994. It's one of the happiest days of my life. Uh, that uh, at the time, not many other people really cared about. I was like, I just signed sublime. And like, there's like one, you know what I mean? It was like me and Greg. No, it wasn't, nobody necessarily thought it was going to be what it was going to be, except the people that were like myself, Groovy, Greg, Sporto, Miguel, like we knew, you know, everybody else was just another kind of stab in a sense. Um, not that they didn't like it, but you know what I mean? To, to really know like how deep that and penetrating the message and that music and, you know, vibe could hit. And um, shortly after that, 
Brad was um, arrested in some kind of incident at his house that involved uh, heroin and somebody ODing. And I think they were, um, you know, trying to um, pin it on Brad and he got charged with, with something. And this is where the label had to really step up because at this point, was a similar time to when um date rape was just breaking and date rape was a single that although it was 1992 when the band recorded it it didn't hit commercial radio on k-rock until 1995 um like january of 95 i want to say is when k-rock first put date rape on the air and um it was a runaway smash on K-Rock. It was honestly, it was not by design because date rape for me was like a slice of life. Cool part of sublime, but it wasn't the song that I envisioned them getting recognized by and potentially pigeonholed their whole career by a novelty song. So when K-Rock started playing that first, honestly, the first things out of my mouth was like, stop the press and cease and desist. There's, you know, there's all these other songs. Um, and Ray doesn't do what they do. They got such a huge reaction on that. It was like, you know, uh, the success of the band started to kind of grow. And at that point, you know, this incident happened and uh, it was like the label had to pay for uh, a drug or they hired an attorney to help Brad not navigate the legal charges. And then he got a drug diversion charge from the court. I went to court with them. I remember going to a uh, court in Long Beach with them and we appeared and he got the drug diversion, which meant that he needed to go to a rehab program. And the label at this point really stepped up. They paid, I remember it was like 40 to 50 grand for him to do uh, an outpatient um, counseling program in the Bay area. So at that point it was to keep him out of jail and also to, um, enable him to be able to still travel so he didn't have this on his record because at this point we were talking about international stuff and you know there was a single on the radio and there was a little bit more at stake and um i do have to give credit to gasoline alley because they came and you know they they believed enough at that point where they backed all that and i started flying to the bay area with brad to his treatments um occasionally and i'm from the bay area so this was close to home for me and i remember him trying to you know clean up and going through that struggle and coming back home from that and trying not to be lured back in by even just the geographical nature of being in in long beach you know he kind of moved out to a different area and at this point troy was trying to steer him in the right direction so we'd go and you know meet up and uh yeah, I was just trying to trying to keep sobriety as something that, you know, uh, was realistic, but it was kind of forced by the situation. And we all had a lot of obviously high hopes and it wasn't without its struggle. But anyway, that kind of ran its course. And, you know, by 1990, end of 95, date rape had been a major smash on K-Rock. The band was selling out the palace where you know, maybe before they were begging to be an opening act, they were now headlining a iconic venue in Hollywood and selling it out. And we had um, started to solicit for producers to um, make the next album, which um, where 
we use the um, resources of Gasoline Alley MCA to, to hire producers and get the band into real studios because they had homemade the first two records. And it was, um, that was kind of for me, like I just wanted to give them all the tools to create a masterpiece that could actually, you know, be a com- huge commercial success, kind of like Nirvana's Nevermind or something at that level. Um, so yeah, I mean that's kind of up until that point that 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 was that was what was was going on, and I'm not sure if that answered your question because I got lost in that. But you know that kind of the Chinese uh, rap oh rap the Chinese rap. thing. So yeah, so what happened is uh, so when the band came in to meet the label, uh, the label liked to take uh, artists that they were going to sign to a famous restaurant in Hollywood, Chinese restaurant called Genghis Cohen, and. I believe Sublime was playing the club lingerie, which was a, a rock club in Hollywood. And um, we said, uh, well, hey, Gasoline Alley, the guys want to take you out to dinner before the show. So let's meet at this Genghis Cohen restaurant. And I remember the band showed up. I had um, all the execs of the label. Like, <clears throat> these are guys, again, that are, you know, in their 50s, 60s, you know, pretty much uh have had huge success in the music business have the label now but um they're not in the punk rock world you know and remember brad came with bud uh eric miguel maybe and then they brought like three or four other dudes with them that i didn't know who they were and uh the label had this table you know and everybody just came in there and sat down at the table popping beers and this and that. And I remember, you know, the late chopsticks were breaking. It was just, it was just chaos again, you know? And it was like, the label was like, who are these guys? I'm like, well, those two guys are in the band. I'm not sure who those guys are. Uh, it wasn't their normal like record company dinner, you know, with the R and B acts and stuff that they were really signing. At the time. <laughs> and um, I remember Brad, like the hot and sour soup came to the table and it was like one of the big bowls, like for the, for the table to share. And Brad just reached for the hot and sour soup and put it up to his mouth and sucked down the bowl. And then he like yeah. bailed. And I remember him, <laughs> like I went out to the parking lot. It's like, Brad, what's up? And he was in the back of the pickup playing his acoustic guitar. And uh, yeah, I mean, the meeting ended pretty, pretty short lived meeting again. And uh the band went to play their show at the lingerie and the label like was like the next day I came in the office. They were like, what the fuck? But, but <laughs> as I said, eventually it worked out due to perseverance and, and um, you know, the music I think did start to uh, affect some other people too. And, and uh, yeah, by 95, they were by 94 summer, they were signed by 95 uh, K rock was spitting date rape as an, as a number one song on K rock. And, they got the warp tour in the summer of 95 and um that was the first like major you know tour for the band and at that point the warp tour was like in some places it was i mean that was the first year it ever went out so that was a experiment and it was like some places maybe it was like around the country 500 people and by the time that tour wrapped back around to southern cal at the end of it that summer of 95 sublime had been on the radio a lot no doubt was starting to you know break and so there was five thousand people at irvine meadows not in the main venue but in the concourse that's where the stage for warp was set up and uh sublime was at that point kind of like the 
the band that everyone wanted to see, you know, and the scene was just hitting. So um, to put things in perspective, that's kind of like where it was at. And those, those shows were probably the biggest shows Sublime had done to date, you know, probably 4,000, 5,000 people in the concourses of the major amphitheaters, but not yet in the big amphitheaters. And then by 96 um, and end of 95 after that tour is when I was able to get the band into the studio with uh, Paul Leary of the Butthole Surfers, um, who was chosen as a producer, and David Kahn, who had produced Fishbone. Um, and these were separate sessions that would start to ensue um, towards uh, towards the end of 95 and, and 96. Or yeah, end of 95, I'd say, is when those were going down. Yeah, that, uh, I, to me, it just speaks volumes of how amazing Sublime's sound and what they were doing is. I mean, you, you sit back and look at it, you're talking about a business that dealt with guys like Rod Stewart and some of the big names that you mentioned. And, um, you know, this band came in, their dog shit and pissed all over the office, brand ruined a brand new BMW, slurped this, the hot and sour soup, left and went in the back of his truck to play his guitar and still had a deal that they, that they were willing to work with. Um, it, it just, it, it speaks volumes for how amazing they were because that just doesn't seem like something that a record label would put up with from a, a band that really hasn't broken through yet. Like I said, I mean, I think, you know, again, they, I was relentless about it. I just wouldn't let them let it die. And there was one guy more at the executive level that, uh, that I think started to get a little bit like, you know, interested in the music, but, you know, at that point, I don't, again, labels like MCA and I'll, they didn't really realize what they had until they had it. You know, it's more of the core of the guys like Miguel, myself, Sporto, um, Zach. Like one of the things we did when first signed the band and brought them into the, into the gasoline alley, like infrastructure. I told guy, I said, you know what? Don't even touch this as gasoline alley MCA. Let me work on, you know, the next record with the band but let them continue these two albums they've got 40 ounces and skunk Rec um and rob in the hood on skunk records and really what the smartest thing gasoline Alley did was they allowed us to kind of function independently of them and so it was like we harnessed the energy of like what was skunk records and we just did it out of gasoline alley's office for a long time um using the resources there, but it was a calculated effort to just keep pushing the, the first two albums as skunk records because they had that authenticity, the DIY vibe with skunk skunk was a cool name. You know what I mean? It just, it all fit. And it was like, why let the corporate, you know, machine that, that was another part of, you know, kind of observing too, for me, or like, if the machine gets a hold of something too early and it doesn't happen, it's done. You know what I mean? And it was like, this stuff was happening more organically in an authentic nature. Um, so a big part of the, you know, I guess plan was like, let's, let's harness what skunk is doing and just, you know, keep working these albums as, as that. And that really helped, you know, because the major labels and the guys that are all, I mean, until something's on radio, you know what I mean? They they don't really care that much about it. 
Yeah, the radio, for those of you who are listening, is where you used to hear music before <laughs> your Spotify and your YouTube and <laughs> everything else came out. You might have also heard John mention a boombox uh, for our younger listeners. That is your iPod, but it's about the size of a microphone or microwave, <laughs> excuse me. Um, just, a, just a few things to set you up there. Now, John, you had mentioned a lot about like samples and things like that. Now, if you were lucky enough to get your hands on one of those early... Uh, versions of 40 ounce, you would come across a track called Rawhide and kind of a completely different get out. Why don't we hear those on the one that I go and pick up from the store today? That's a cool question. Um, so one of the things I had said earlier that was really cool and appealing to me about Sublime was like, they're like the beastie boys and they took hip hop elements and a big part of that art was sampling and sampling laws had changed from you know the early hip-hop days and sublime was making music just straight for the art of it you know like they weren't playing by the rules or like we did so they made their art with a, a hodgepodge of samples and interpolations and things that you know are other people's intellectual property or copyrights that you just can't use and sell um the big appeal of those records to me were the samples and the, such a part of the character. Um, when those came to me, I mean, there's no way for anybody to go and listen to those things and be able to dig out and tell you what every sample was. I mean, this was between the, the DJs that Bradley and Sublime used, the Miguel sound, all the stuff that they put in and baked into these records. Um, it, there was no, um, there's nothing to like, there's no key that told you, hey, this is this, this is that. But uh, we knew they were samples. We knew there were things, but um, it didn't really happen until those records, really until Date Rape started making noise. And then these records were being sold in stores. And, um, you know, we expanded the distribution through a bigger distributor. Universal wasn't yet putting their names on the records, but they were starting to sell. Um we just came up against the challenge of like samples actually have to be cleared. And these records were made with no regard to that. So <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the challenges of, of A&R in a record, you know, or these ones were already done, but like you pay big money for samples in the, in the hip hop world or in another world. And Sublime didn't pay anything. They just made these things. Uh, Real big example of one is um, when they came into my office for the first time to play Robin the Hood, which was in 90, end of 94, before they put it out in 95. Brad's like, I want to play you the, the next hit. I want to play my new hit. And he put in the dat tape, had a dat. He put in a dat tape into the, that's what we had in the office. And he played me Cisco Kid. The first thing off of Cisco Kid is a door sample. Hmm. And I'm like, first off, I mean, it's not one of the songs you'd identify as a sublime hit. And and I don't know if he was just joking or he was just into that song at the time. But the other part about it was like, that's got, you know, a massive sample from the music's over or um, soul. Oh, what song is that? Dude. But it's a door sample. I mean, how are you going to clear that? You know, and that that wasn't cleared. I don't think that was cleared actually until fuck a decade plus later you know even more recently the door sample was taken care of um but yeah taking all that in 
we identified a lot of the samples and we went to the, the label, went to the publishers, went to the master owners of the samples. And we hired a, a person. I remember uh, Nancy Stern was a lady that I hired. She had a company called Sample Clearance Limited and they specialized in clearing samples. So they went out and got all the quotes for all the things that we could identify that the band told us about uh, or that we could discern with our own ears and tried to try to clear some of these things. Um, couple of notes on that is that one um yeah rawhide and a few of those things i think got taken out because the fundamental change or copyright of the original lyric or song um some things never got cleared other things like later records like doing time has herbie man live at the village vanguard clearable um it had the beastie boys and we do it like this it's a place to be got that cleared had to pay 10 percent of the song i think on that and the beastie boys actually asked not to be credited on on that one um betty writes clean up woman on let's go get stoned not sure if that was ever cleared or was clearable um but yeah i mean there's just so many little things in there and you know we did our best and sometimes you you know uh posthumously i mean uh, the the labels were getting them I and i'm sure there was a few loss i know there was a few lawsuits for things that were uncleared um i had a lot of guys calling me too like everybody thought that step and razor was a peter tosh song but step and razor was the joe higgs song and joe higgs's publishing was owned by a publisher randall wixon and one day i got a call at my office hey what's the sublime you know like step and razor and I'm like, oh, Peter Tosh? No, it's my publishing client, Joe Higgs, another reggae legend, by the way. And uh, we just didn't know, you know, like Brad had a musical depth to him and Miguel and these guys. They, so they were throwing and putting obscure things, you know, layering these records with all kinds of, you know, samples and interpolations. I remember on Facebook at one point, or no, sorry, it was on MySpace before Facebook. There was these groups that actually had published you know, all the songs Led Zeppelin took from the blues um, and all the songs like all the Sublime songs that um, Sublime took from, you know, wherever. And those are some of the most in-depth analyses of sampling and interpolating music. But my thoughts on it, I mean, one, you got to give credit where credit is due. But two, I mean, that's an art form in itself. It happens in liter literature with illusions. Um, uh, it, it, Brad was... I mean, they named the record Robin the Hood for a reason. They were stealing stuff and they knew it, you know, but <laughs> I mean, but um, at the same Artistically time, it, borrowing. Let's just, yeah. Like, stealing's a little rough. Artistically however, borrowing. However you want. <laughs> e either way, exactly. I mean, I, but um, that kind of stuff, when you're just doing it for arts and creation's sake, you're not thinking about the other side of it. And it sometimes comes back to haunt you or you got to deal with it. And Sublime's music was the ultimate art form of that, you know? So, um, a lot of that stuff, again, like we learned later what it really was and where it came from. And within that, you know, I made a lot of great friends of musicians and people and reggae legends, like half pint where Bradley had taken what I got from the half pint song. Lovin' is what I got or Lovin'. And well, I know what that was. Like I knew Bob Marley and Peter Tosh, but I mean, who was half pint? Like, uh, and I didn't, wouldn't know that song, but 
We later found out because Long Beach Dub went to a, a, a reggae festival and Half Pint was playing and the guys in Half Pint, uh, they knew that LB Dub was from Sublime. They were like, what I got, like, they, that's when we found out that was Half Pint songs, you know, or not his song, but that where Brad interpolated that hook and chorus, which again, what an art form to do that and make something new. But we didn't know where that was coming from. And um, Half Pint ended up getting quite a bit of the publishing on that later, which was a blessing for him. I'm sure Bradley would have wanted it that way too, you know, but um, he, we, unfortunately, we just never had the time because Brad had passed and it was like, he never was able to tell us what was what, right, you know, and one that we did know about, and I've told this before, um, doing time, you know, the story behind that is that they took, um, Herbie man's live at the village Vanguard, a beastie Boys sample as well. And some other stuff. And then they took, you know, summertime and the living's easy, which is, uh, Gershwin, Porgy and Bess. It's an American standard, you know, um, theatrical song that's probably one of the most protected musical copyrights in existence um and what happened with that is um the gershwin estate you know heard it from from universal universal tried to clear it and doing time was one of those songs that was one of our favorite sublime songs i i know that myself other people and brad felt like that was one that really like was progressive and you know showed you a glimpse of where this music could go um in a lot of levels and just a masterpiece of a song but again it was an interpolation of summertime and the living's easy from porgy and bess and universal called me and said we hate to inform you this but the gershwin estate publishing people won't clear this um and the weirdest thing was that I remember going up in the elevator in Gaslin Alley's office all these years I was there and they had on the um, marquees of what each office was and the floor numbers and all that. There was always Ira and Leonore Gershwin estate. I'm like, interesting. Like, so I went on for, uh, it was up a couple of floors from my office and I went up there and I knocked on their door and um, it was one of these like offices that you couldn't get into the, it was just like a, reception wall or whatever is very uh, sterile and like i'm like hey um, i'm from the record label downstairs and i wanted to talk to somebody here at you know the gershwin publishing side we've got um a situation with one of our songs that has a gershwin publishing scenario bub so uh they eventually introduced me to someone in gershwin's uh the state like division that a guy named mark goldberg and they said, go back there and see Mark. And uh, I, I went back to this guy's office. And there's a guy that I remember seeing multiple times in the elevator over the years, never got friendly or anything. And so we knew each other's face. I'm like, hey, I'm from the label downstairs. What's up? Um, here's Doing Time by Sublime. And this is a record that's going to come out on MCA and Universal, you know, in Gasoline Alley from downstairs through MCA Universal and Universal saying, you guys won't clear this. Um, so I sat there and explained to this guy from Gershwin's estate that, you know, like hip hop and like the art that is propelling music and pop culture, that this is actually, you know, this is an honor in the sense that it's really taking this incredible American standard and putting it in a progressive light. And, you know, well, so I, you know, I don't know if he was going to buy this or not, but anyway, it turned out he was from the same 
uh, town in Northern California that I grew up in. And we ended up being members of the same synagogue. And he ended up giving me the clearance on the song. And unfortunately, that guy. Yeah. And that that song, I remember telling Brad one of my last conversations with Bradley because it was before the record came out. And he had doing times in the original sequence of the album that he gave me. He re-put like Trenchtown Rock on it on the first song. And the second song was doing time. And uh, I told him, I'm like, man, Universal just called and said they don't think they can clear that shit. So and Brad passed away like three weeks, I think, after that. And he, you know, I don't he never knew if that song made it on the album. And I fought like hell to to try to make sure that it got on there. And it just happened to be like the guy was right above my office and was from my same town like what are the chances of that you know that's just luck man that's that's amazing luck and so you know what their their stipulation was because they're like this is fundamental change of copyright and lyric and in 10 of the song or whatever so they didn't like that it said doing time and the living's easy they were like you got to change that back to summertime and if you're gonna if we're gonna let you release it and you got to give us 75 percent of the publishing but go and change it brad had already passed away so miguel had to go in the studio and cut that up and that's actually miguel's voice that says summer summertime like that was spliced in posthumously and became the uh the compromise that allowed that song to actually be commercially released. A little, a little inside baseball, John, um, you know, I'm a, I'm very active in all the sublime groups and I talk to, you know, most of the fans and, uh, you know, there'll be conversations where, and I'm, I'm not going to name any names cause they're probably all friends of Kelly's and the family and yours, but you know, occasionally fans will be like, Hey, you know what? Fuck that guy. He's making money off of sublime for no reason. Or that guy's still cashing checks on. So John Phillips, man, he earned his fucking money. I'll tell you right now. He, he, he earned his money <laughs> from sublime. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's well recognized all of the work that you've done to make sure that we could get as, as many of these tracks as, as we possibly could. So just to let you know, from the fans point, we certainly appreciate and, and understand uh, a lot of what you had to go through. You know, I was servicing the music and Bradley most of all. I mean, it's something that hit me spiritually. And what by telling you guys these stories, I'm definitely not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just trying to give a glimpse into the history of, um, you know, some of the behind the scenes things that you you do go through these processes. And again, for me, I, I just at the end of the day, my first thing about it was I just want this music to be exposed to the masses i i knew how important it was and had that connection to to bradley and sublime the music so um you know it's just one of those things like you know i was serving the music and i'm glad that on one level everybody got to hear it you know it's bittersweet and i'm sad but inspired every day that you know unfortunately in the process we lost probably one of the most talented you know musicians you could ever be graced by their presence with and i just happen to be struck by lightning you know and uh if the thunder don't get you then the lightning will and i mean respect to brad nolan sublime you know it, it just uh it's been i would not be here doing what i'm doing today still if it wasn't for that you know and i definitely uh that's something for me that i i never forget john let, let me ask you and i know that this is a part that 
that Kelly always likes. And it's not one that she asks because she already knows all of you guys. So it can be musically, but preferably not. Obviously, you knew Brad. Um, you guys worked closely together. Give me a memory that you have of a time that you were just kind of hanging out with Brad or something awesome that happened. Um, you know, people have told all sorts of stuff. Marshall told a story about just going on a boat ride with him the, the one time. Is there a specific memory that really sticks out about Bradley? Well, <clears throat> there's definitely, you know, there's plenty of them. I mean, there's one thing that I always kind of I flash back to and, that was like one of these days that it was like a sunny day and I came down to Long Beach to meet up with Brad and I think he was going to take me by Jim's house or something like that. And, uh, I had a pickup truck and I went and picked up Brad and we put Lou in the back of the pickup. Um, and then I remember he took me, he's like showing me around Long Beach. I wasn't totally familiar with Long Beach yet. So he was taking me, I was driving and he's like, you know, showing me here's this place and, you know, Belmont Shores, but here's where we play. And uh, Lou's in the back of my pickup. And I remember getting into like Belmont Shores, I think. And there happened to be a, a SBC, like a dog catcher, like police. And they... <laughs> They saw the Lou dog in the back of my pickup and I remember, and I don't know if it was Long Beach police or, or it was actually SPCA. It was one of these, like, I was just like, what the fuck? And, uh, so Brad's like, step on it, you know, whatever. And so he remember him directing me through the maze of, of <laughs> Belmont shores, which he knew so well, like, it was like, I'm really at home with Brad now. And I remember him navigating me to ditch the, uh, the dog police that was after us and escape and keep <laughs> keep new dog at a dog jail. Uh, and I think yeah, and I think we eventually ended up making it to uh to Jim's place and, and having lunch with Jim out there um on a couple of lawn chairs. And I remember uh yeah, Bradley he told Jim because I you know I was a young guy too. I was even a year or two younger than than and brad and he kind of gave me the ultimate compliment i remember telling jim he's like you know this is john he's like he's wise beyond his years or something like that and um that was just one of those long beach bradley days that you know i'll never forget you know it was just me him and met his dad and you know we we ditched the dog police with lou dog and it was just cool it was innocent you know and it was like just seeing Bradley in his neighborhood and element in, in that kind of sense was, was, was really cool. Kelly. So if uh, John is a year younger than Brad, just to catch you up, that means John's 27 right now. <laughs> right. Actually, John and I are very close in age. Thanks for pointing that out, Jared. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. just tur turned the big five on September. So um, yeah. See, I'm a few months older than you. I turned 50 in July. Well, happy birthday. We're both got to celebrate our fifties in the, in the COVID zone, which absolutely. Uh, yeah. But what um, did I tell you, Kelly? It's double 25. That's, that's right. <laughs> that's, how you, that's, twice. How, that's how you explain that. <laughs> um, but yeah, what a long, strange trip it's been. And, and oh, uh, yeah. time has just flown. It's like, uh, you know, it just seems like it's been a long time, but it almost seems like yesterday that some of these things were happening. And, um, you know, for me, honestly, it was 
the early days of just getting into this business and having something um, as sacred as Sublime to to be associated with and whatnot, and just to be kind of the the, the beginning of all that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was still the analog CD. There was no Instagram, Facebook. There was no there was no digital files yet. You know, it was like we were still got to live in the tail end of the golden era of physical records and the, and the record business before the onset of, you know, digital technology that completely disrupted and changed the game. Um, and, you know, it's, I'm thankful that I got to live in that era, you know, um, I'm thankful that I got to live in an era where I got to see Jerry Garcia playing the grateful dead and Bradley Noel playing sublime, you know, not, everybody got that you know so um and i mean what a gift you know brad and sublime gave us this music that will stick with us forever and uh brings you back to those wow. times absolutely well we're definitely glad you were a part of it obviously because you had a huge impact on sublime and their history and also because of everything that you've continued to do i mean you've got a tremendous roster of artists right now several who we had on the house of bradley belt compilation album um obviously fortunate youth did jailhouse ethan tucker and sean the shaman did stepping razor and uh of course jacob and aiden from law did rivers of babylon with my dad so yeah. i think it's really cool to see it all come full circle you know yeah roots of really. creation Hyrie. you know I mean, yes. all, all the bands that are doing stuff today that are the younger bands and we're influenced by that it's a refreshing look and take on uh on the music you know and i remember a look at all the love that we found um sublime cd that was also you know similar concept but back in what 20 20 years ago probably or more now and uh working on that record uh or consulting for it anyway but you know the likes of g love because i had called g love on that one to do greatest hits and uh i love what g love did on on the house of bradley that's a really cool april 29th yeah, I'm glad he did a good that. One. yeah and uh um vonalia's uh johnny butt really like that um but yeah there's it's, it's just cool to hear new takes on the music i mean sublime right. songs ne never get old i think it's a real challenge to cover a sublime song you know mm. it's like it's how do you actually you know do it justice and right. there's a lot of great versions i mean when fishbone did date rape on that on look at <laughs> all the love we found i was you know that was a perfect you know come back to square one because i feel like yeah. that song was so influenced by that and yeah, just to see this next wave and generation, and we're talking, you know, a generation or two later from when uh, Sublime was doing it in 1996. It's amazing uh, the strength that this music and influence that Bradley and Sublime had. And it's not surprising to me because it's the same yeah. thing that I was kind of in the day believing when I was telling these labels, like, this is timeless, you know, it's a classic and uh it's it's just when it happens and it's like then and you're witnessing it it's uh it's always a, it's always a cool feeling you know to to see it continue to um evolve yeah for sure yeah, yeah. So who are some of the other artists that you're working with now um so right now the current roster slightly stupid who um 
Silverback and Stupid. We've managed them since 1998. And again, I mean, because of Bradley, I mean, one day he didn't have his license and he needed a ride to the office. He called a guy named Miles Dowdy to pick him up and give him a ride to come visit me. And I remember Brad would have a slightly stupid sticker sometimes on one of the guitars he played. And I was like, what's slightly stupid? And these are these kids in San Diego. I know, you know, little Groms or whatever. I want to help out on the label and try to help. And Miles brought Brad to my office one day. And I just remember Brad saying that day, hey, this is Miles from Slightly Stupid. And it always resonated me as symbolic. Like, if you want this music to continue, you know what I mean? Like, this is Miles. He could help take it down the road for you. You know, that just was one of those kind of enlightening things. And um so stupid obviously uh, stalwart in the staple and you know um just continue to defy and evolve and make great music um the other like direct you know correlation and gift from brad and i've said this before jacob noel i mean just i was in my office when brad brought jacob when part of his umbilical cord was still attached to his belly, him and Troy came up, you know? <laughs> and I remember uh, Bradley come in. He was so happy. He seemed so healthy. And Jake was just in, like just out of the womb type of thing. He brought him to the office. And um, to think again, what a trip that, you know, 24 years later, like, yeah, but it's really cool to, um, and I'm a big believer in where Jacob and Law can go. Um, but um, Law is a really exciting project. They're just uh, finishing up some mixing things on a record that they just recorded. And they're starting to put out some yeah. demos on Patreon. So, I mean, of course, you know, Stupid and Law. Um, next to that, I mean, Silverback's grown and evolved with, you know, artists like Fortunate Youth is a newer artist. Um a newer artist named Denim from Huntington Beach that's starting to buzz a bit. Today, our label released a song from the band Catastro that's a little more hip-hop. Um, a big part of, like, for me, um, Ethan Tucker, as you you know said, was a contributor on the record, and, and Brett Wilson from Roots of Creation, who's another guy that shares an affinity of Jerry Garcia and Bradley as their main influences. Yeah. Cool artist, but um, I'm also very passionate and... Um, deeply involved in the new orleans funk scene uh reggae music and funk music i feel are like cornerstones of uh just influential music that kind of have a lot of parallels and i dive really deep into the new orleans uh and you know silverback has into the new orleans you know funk music with legendary artists like george porter jr who's the original bass player of the meters which basically invented funk music and are probably the most sampled rhythm section in all of hip hop and had that influence. Wow. Still play music, you know, in, in the jam band scene and the New Orleans funk scene and Jazz Fest. Um Dumpsta Funk is another band that's Ivan and Ian Neville, sons of the Neville brothers and meters. So trying to like cross pollinate and genre in terms of and like I alluded to earlier, I mean music's very regional and California music and reggae influenced music is is one like subculture and you know New Orleans it's the birthplace of jazz it's to me the birthplace of funk and just trying to again service the music that I love and and 
try to help, you know, bring those musicians up into a wider audience. So um always excited about, you know, the stuff that's happening in that world. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that that's, that's a definite cross section of, of some of the artists. We recently, another major thing that, and I'm really proud of this and excited about it is we recently started working with Stephen Marley. Um, wow. He's just the spirit of Bob and just one of, I feel like one of the great reggae producers of our time. And I am looking forward to like the new music that he's working on because it's almost like um, a hybrid of reggae and soul and blues. And it's just, it's so good and so original. And um, he emulates the spirit of Bob so authentically. And so like, that's, you know, that's mm. something that I'm really excited about. And um yeah, uh, I hope I'm not forgetting anybody else, but you know that's that's kind of a cross section of a lot of the stuff right now that we're working on. That's Silverback. Yeah, awesome. You guys are keeping busy. It's been a really busy time, despite <laughs> live tour Good. stopping. It's just like the wheels keep on turning, and people are consuming mu- music, you know, more so than ever. And I mean, you know, music is the uh, the lifeblood and kind of the language that we all gravitate to. So, yes, um, you know, it's uh, it continues again to evolve and surprise. And um, yeah, it's uh, it'd be interesting to see what the future brings, given that people in lockdown. And um, I feel like a creative renaissance or what's affected artists and what they're going to write about or what manifests and, you know the creations mm-hmm. that are happening during a pandemic or a completely, you know, unprecedented time. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens out of that, you know? Um, I that's, agree. Uh, yeah. So definitely looking forward to that. I mean, another thing, just going through all this, I don't know how many times I've said to myself, man, like, I wonder what Bradley would say about this shit. <laughs> I actually posted one, <laughs> one, uh, little meme i made and posted on social media at one point during the pandemic uh was bradley in sunglasses and no shirt from i think from the date rape video and i was like strapped with protection or strapped with disease like just (laughs) uh, like there's so many things that he said that were even if they weren't meant for you know kind of right but I just, as, as a friend, you know, and just as a witty, like, I just, like, I wonder what Brad would say about this shit. You know what I mean? Oh, and, that's awesome. And, uh, yeah, so that <laughs> definitely has been uh, on my mind quite a bit. And, I mean, I wish he was here, and I wish that we yeah. were able to hear his voice, you know, kind of comment or, or you know, put something out there artistically. And that's, you know, that's the, the bittersweet part of it. But um, luckily, we've got people that are carrying the torch and people like Mm. yourself kelly that are trying to you know serve a mission to something again that i also don't want to overlook that you know my experience and you know for me losing an artist and a friend like bradley noel i mean that's a gigantic loss and void that's completely unfillable you know um the collective energy of everybody else to me barely makes up at all for that you know and uh for the work that you guys are doing and wherever it's going um you know i think it's an, it's important because you know to me it's such a tragic loss and yeah. you know it's uh hopefully that you know the work that you guys are doing is able to help people that 
you know, you steer people away from that course. And if they are on it, help them out before it's too late. Um, I know one thing that red light had done was a pretty big thing for also was uh Trey Anastasio of fish. You know, he, he did something mm. really big for addiction, uh, recovery, um, things with his live streaming stuff. And it's just, you know, it's a reality. This is a tough business and there's creative people and people yeah. get addicted to their vices. And, um, you know, I think with sublime, we were all at a time period in our life that we were young and inexperienced and going through these things for the first time, you know, none of yeah. us had really ever had somebody in our life that had an addiction problem. And like I said, I mean, give credit because the industry is often looked at as kind of faceless to that, but you know, the labels try to step up and, and pay for the rehab. So you can't always help somebody. And that's a, that's a tough right. thing, you know, and it's always like, you kind of kick yourselves. Could I have done more and all that? But you know, all you can do is learn from your experience and try to shed light, you know, on other people. So, um, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's something that it's honorable about what you guys are trying to do. And definitely for me, I work with, um, some incredible sober artists that the new Orleans guys, I mean, they've been in the thickest, deepest funk and, you know, that you could ever, yeah. be. um, you know, and two of the artists that I work with, Ivan Neville and George Porter, like sobriety has been a part of their life for 30 years. And wow. they're, you know, some of the coolest, most artistic, deepest people. And they're luckily mm -hmm. guys that made it out of the depths of, you know, uh, what they, but not everybody does, unfortunately. Right. And, um, you know, so again, I mean, everything that I do, I, I wear Bradley on my heart and, and, uh, it's an inspiration, you know, in terms of all that. So. Well, I'm so glad that you guys in house of Bradley. Thank you. I'm, I'm just so glad that you've continued on and, and done everything you've done in the music industry and in your life. Um, you're a good person. And, and I always felt very fortunate that, that Brad and Sublime had you, you know, shepherding them and guiding them at that point in their career. So thank you for that. For sure. And I'm again, fortunate and lucky and privileged to be a part of it. You know, I'm going to put you on the spot here and I do this with every single guest that comes on and, and chats about sublime with us. Um, you have a, a, an 18 or 19 year old intern walk into your office and he sees one of your sublime pictures hanging on the wall and he goes, who's this? I, I'm, I'm not familiar with this band, but he's going to give you an opportunity to play one song to catch him. I'll give you a chance. I'll give this band a chance. Play one song for me. And if I like it, I'll check them out more. And if not, I'm out. What's, what song are you playing? Uh, man, the crazy thing is, is like when date rape happened on, on uh, K rock. I, and I just say this and to preface it, I, we ended up making dartboards at the label, uh, homemade dartboards and sent dartboards <laughs> to K rock. And each thing, instead of a number on the dartboard, it had a sublime song. And the <laughs> message was that like, throw your darts at the board because yeah. wherever it goes, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's a hit or, you sure. know, at the time was almost two was like date rate was happening. And again, that was, that's probably one that I wouldn't tell only because I, I just thought it was a novelty um, going back. I mean, what an amazing song, you know, but honestly, I think that doing uh, it's, it's really, really hard for me to say that 
I mean, doing time is the one that I said kind of like to me was a more progressive look at where sublime might be going in the future. And as far as today, since it has that hip hop kind of feel and it's, it's almost like electronic music, you know what I mean? Lana Del Rey covered it. It's like, it has something that, um, is progressive. So that would definitely be one of, one of them. Um, mm. I always love the song, the work that we do. So if somebody mm-hmm. was an intern for me looking at work in the music business, I would, <laughs> I would definitely have them listen to that song on repeat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, that was just always such a cryptic kind of like dark song. Um, you know, get out masterpiece, 40 ounces to yeah. free the masterpiece. Um, uh, I always, I mean, I always really liked, uh, all you need a lot like I, you know it's just so hard it's, it's an unfair <laughs> i would give them a dart board again and i would yeah. tell them i give them three darts and say throw them up there and go do your homework <laughs> i like it okay i i can i can accept that as an answer yeah it, it's it, my answer changes all the time but as i've said on this podcast before uh july 30th 1996 two things happened sublime self-titled came out And it was the day that I became a teenager. I turned 13 on that day. And I remember going to the wall and uh, it's just a music store. For those of you who are younger, you used to be able to go to the mall and buy music. You didn't have to, it wasn't just a (laughs) button. And uh, I remember uh, picking up self-titled sublime and just, I mean, every single track right from the beginning, I was just like, this is it just blew me away. But when I got to track eight, when I got to jailhouse, I I don't know what it is about that song or why, but that is the song. So if anybody puts me on the spot, it's, it's jailhouse has always been my favorite sublime song. I mean, that is definitely was one of my favorites too. And I remember seeing the band before it was ever on a record um, when Bradley and sublime would break in the jailhouse. It was one of these ones that was hitting their repertoire a, a little bit, I think later, but I remember seeing him do it once at like um, the Golden Sales Hotel or one of those places. And yeah, that always struck me. I always thought that was like, man, and that song wasn't written by Bradley. It's like a, Bob Marley gets credited, but I'm not even sure if Marley wrote it. But that's one of the old, older Jamaican, you know, reggae songs. Um, oh, yeah. I do think Fortunate Youth did a pretty good version of that as well. Jailhouse definitely was a big one for me. Like, I love when they recorded that. Another one that didn't get recorded uh, on the level that I would have liked uh, to have heard is Crazy Fool, which was another obscure reggae cover that um, also made its way into the sublime repertoire in a similar fashion to Jailhouse. And when they would play those two songs, um, those are definitely two that I, I are very special for me as well um they're neither one of them were written by brad but he sang them in a way and you know crazy fool is like a track it's a motown style track um yeah. and it's one that i had such high hopes for hearing bradley record in the studio and and do the you know the real recording of it and it it never got to happen uh the version on the palace other than some mistakes that are part of the character but the three ring circus live uh has crazy fool and if you ever get a chance to 
watch the DVD of that. Um, or uh, now it's probably not a DVD, but however you access that on um, Apple Music or video. But if Universal has it, I honestly think Universal botched that release quite a bit. It's um, it's one of my favorite Sublime releases. If you listen to the remastered audio from Sublime Three Ring Circus of the Palace and listen to Crazy Fool, there's there's um, you know, there's clams, there's mistakes, there's all kinds of shit, but. It gives you a glimpse into the, um, you know, God, the the beautiful vocal and melody of that song and Bradley singing it and definitely really another special one for me too. But yeah. Perfectly imperfect. That is, that's kind of how the swine, maybe you can answer this question for me. I had it to ask for uh, Miguel when he was on the podcast, but he spent so much time noodling and singing songs and telling crazy stories that um, I don't think I got most of the questions in that I wanted. So maybe, you know, um, you hear a lot on you, when you can find these live recordings, Brad like to do uh, romantic girl. Is that something that he wrote? Is that somebody else's song? I've never been able to find it anywhere else or anyone else doing it. And I don't know why it was never recorded. And it seemed like one that he liked to play. Uh, romantic girl. Good question. Uh, that would probably be something. Are you, And that's definitely what it was called. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. a lot of, a lot of times he would do it in a ditty. He would start with romantic girl and then it would kick right into Bob Marley's, uh, or his version of Bob Marley's hammer. Um, yeah. but it was just like this, you know, quick little, uh, but it was just a, an amazing, yeah, it was in the medley. Had, in the, it was in the yeah, medley. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I have to think about that for a sec. I can find out the answer for you though. Yeah, we don't we, we can we can edit this right out of the podcast. I don't give a shit if anyone else knows the answer to this except for me. So um. Um, I will definitely have to have to think about that for a sec. I'm sure I could come up uh, with the answer though. Yeah, I uh, it's I mean I've searched the internet high and low to look for you know if it was somebody else's track. I can't find anyone else that that does it. Um, and in all of the credits for Sublime, it's just credited as as Romantic Girl, and it seems like a song yep. that he really had two verses for. Um, but it's just one that always always caught me, and I just never understood why we never heard it on on any other recordings, and I thought maybe it wasn't his song. I know he liked the cover yeah, other I, stuff. Yeah, honestly, that, that, is, uh, that is another one of those old Jamaican songs, I'm pretty sure. I'm, like, hearing it in my head, um, and it's... I have to, I have to, I have to think about it again. It's all kind of on the tip of my tongue, but I'm pretty sure the answer could be found. Yeah, found answers are are, are exactly what I'm looking for. So again, uh, at, at any time, if you ever come across any information, you want to shoot that over to Kelly, and she could just fill me in. I'm I'm able to fill in so many gaps in this uh, or little questions in this podcast, and I know a lot of the fans do as well. Um, I asked Marshall about the the Mob Deep sample uh, on April 29th, yeah. and he said, "I have no idea what you're talking about." Um, so uh. I, uh, I, I knew exactly what he was saying with that answer. He said, I don't know what Mob you're talking Deep, about. Mob Deep was cleared. He said, I don't know what you're talking about, but I will tell you, I'm a big Mob Deep fan. And I said, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Right. <laughs> don't, uh, don't, don't worry about that. So 
Yeah, it was, uh, you know what, John, I, I could, I could literally do this for hours, but I don't, I don't think we should take up too much more of your time, especially because, uh, the only other thing I'm going to ask for you is that at some point down the road, when we reach out, you come back on and chat with us and tell some more stories at some point. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. So great having you on, John. Thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's always good to connect with you, Kelly. Absolutely. Thanks uh, again. Yep, for sure. John, I, uh, Bradley, Noel, and Sublime in the LBC. Thank you guys very much. Noel family, Bradley's house, and uh, the podcast. It's, it's good to be here. Much love, John. Thank you. Wow, Kelly. I uh, Once again, you have set up an amazing guest for our listeners. John Phillips just told some great stories, some that some people may have heard before. Uh, maybe you haven't. Maybe he gave you a little more information on it. But from somebody who was really there and a part of it, uh, you know, I couldn't have been any more excited. And uh, again, I told you, I don't really get too, I don't really get too anxious or too nervous before we, we record or we do these podcasts. But uh, about an hour before we got on, it kind of set in that we were going to be talking to John, and I was more nervous than a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Um, and it was uh, it, it was really it, it was it was really a cool experience for me. So I'm sure the listeners enjoyed it as well. Um, it had to be cool to, to to hear from John and hear some of those stories. It was. I love John, and I have so many fond memories um, from back in the day with him. So it was really cool to have him on the show. It was really fun talking with him. And guys, the reason why John Phillips came on and, and spoke with us, not only for his love of Brad and Sublime, but because he understands what the Noel Family Foundation is trying to do. He talked a little bit about it in the show. And you guys know what we're trying to do as well. And that is raise the funds to get Bradley's house up and running. You guys, we appreciate all the support that the podcast has been getting outside of sharing the podcast, listening to it, downloading clicking that five-star review, you can also help. And Kelly, I've said it before, and I truly mean this. Every time somebody goes to the nollfamilyfoundation.org and they make a donation, no matter how small it is, or they pick up a piece of merch, they get a hoodie or a hat, a t-shirt, um, they go and purchase the House That Bradley Built album, you guys as fans really get to say that you have your part and your piece in the next chapter of what Sublime is. And that's helping get Bradley's house up and built and, and help musicians who are struggling. Um, so we appreciate that. Make sure you guys visit the nollfamilyfoundation.org pick up some merchandise, make a donation. That's why we're doing this podcast. We're bringing it to you guys for free. You don't have to worry about paying to download us anywhere. All we ask that is if you get an opportunity, you donate a dollar, you donate a $2, or you let a friend know about this podcast and, and help get the word out there. Uh, Kelly, there's also outside of the NoelFamilyFoundation.org and all of the amazing social media sites ran by the awesome Jen Armstrong. Jen, thank you mm. so much. Love we also have a Venmo and a Cash App set up, and I always get them confused. So tell anybody who wants to send a dollar or two digitally by clicking a button on their phone how they can do that. We have lots of ways for people to donate, and absolutely, Jarrett, we appreciate every single dollar, and everything goes towards getting Bradley's house built, and we're super stoked to make that happen. 
Yeah, absolutely, guys. We can all take our part as fans in, in helping Brad's family and friends uh, get this foundation up and running. There's so many people that are putting so much hard work into this, and uh, and we need to pull together and get this house built. And um, the cool thing about the Venmo and the Cash App is you can send a dollar. You can send $2. Um, you know, people ask all the time, how can I help? Well, that's the way that you can do it. I do it all the time. I'll get a text message from Kelly saying, did you just send $2 through the Cash App? Yeah, I did, because I had $2 sitting there there and I want to put it in the till and get us that much closer to getting the house built. So you guys can help it and do that as well. Tell a friend and, uh, and, and just do what we can do to be the next part of this story. Kelly, what we always do is we like to end off with a song. And I think John Phillips had spoken a little bit uh, about one of his artists and a song that he also was a big fan of from Sublime. What are we going to let everyone off with today? We're going to hear Step and Razor by Ethan Tucker featuring Sean the Shaman. It's a great interpretation of the song. And if you haven't heard it yet, I think you're going to love it. Guys, until next time, we thank you so much for spending your time with us. And you don't necessarily have to go home right now, but unfortunately, you do have to leave Bradley's house. I'm Jared Orr for Kelly Noel, and we'll see you guys next week. I'm dangerous Don't watch my signs, I'm dangerous Step in I'm dangerous If you wanna live, treat me good If you wanna live, live, I beg you treat me good I'm like a walking razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. Like a stepping razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. Like a walking razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. Don't watch my size, I'm dangerous. Don't watch my size, I'm dangerous. If you wanna live, treat me good. If you wanna live, live, I beg you treat me good. If you are a bully, treat me good. If you are a bully, a bully, I beg you treat me good. I'm like a walking razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. Like a stepping razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. Walking razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. Like a stepping razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. In the temple of my mind, I'm the light of the stone. We all live together, one spirit, one soul. Leaf of one tree, tree of one seed. Stepping like a razor, cutting through the crease. Oh, I told them bully long time ago. Better treat me real good, much better than before. From the 253 to the LBC, magical methods are manifesting to the beat. Like a walking razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. Stepping razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous, so dangerous. Walking razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous. 
so dangerous Like a walking razor Don't watch my size I'm dangerous If you wanna live Treat me good If you wanna live Yeah I beg you treat me good If you are a bully Treat me good If you are a dubby A dubby Oh I beg you treat me good Like a walking razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous. Stepping razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous. Like a walking razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous. Stepping razor, don't watch my size, I'm dangerous. 